Amen. You all can have a seat. And I just want to say welcome again. I know we've got some folks who we haven't seen in a while. We've got some new folks maybe as well. And just want you to know that we are so glad that you are here and you are most welcome here. Just look forward to the opportunity to get to know you and know you better. Thankful that you are here today. My name is Matt, and I'm uh, one of our pastor elders here at Calvary. And I want to share with you a little bit of the process of writing a sermon this morning. Every week or every few weeks, I have to move from a place of no sermon to a place of sermon over the course of either a few weeks or one week or sometimes a handful of days, depending on how everything else has gone. In the world of preaching, sharing how one does the craft of sermon preparation and delivery is sort of a breaking of the rules when it actually comes to Sunday morning. The, the mystery is lost, and you realize alongside me that I'm just a guy who's trying to do my best to love and serve the Lord in this place as faithfully as I can. I pray you would be the same seeking those same sorts of things in your own life. I, I want to share with you a couple things today, and I share a lot of this process with our church at times for two reasons. The first is I hope and pray that I am not the only preacher in this room. What I mean by that is I hope that there are one or two or a few of you that I will get the chance to help learn how to write a sermon and to deliver a sermon, whether that be for a Sunday morning or whether that be at a men's breakfast or a women's brunch. I don't know, women's brunch, I guess. Um, whatever it might be, right? The opportunities to serve the Lord. The other reason that I often share the process, because in the course of writing a sermon, oftentimes for me, what what I have to work through is about half the, the, the trouble, if I can use that word, of, of writing a sermon. What I personally have to walk through as we go from no sermon to sermon. And, and what I want to do from up front here is lead by example. I want to set a tone where I personally can share what some of my struggles are along the way, the things that I have difficulties with, the things that, that hurt me, the things that frustrate me, those sorts of things. Why? So that we as a church, when we actually sit down for a meal together or sit down together and pray, we might actually get to the heart of things and not just deal with that surface stuff that we're so used to dealing with most of the time. So I want to share with you, before we even get into the word today, I want to share with you three fears I have coming into this message today. Now you'll know, you'll understand this when we get there, but, but I want to share them with you because I had to work through them in the course of bringing this out and bringing it into where I can be here with you. And what I want you to know is exactly how much work that was. Yes, you can giggle. Thank you. So here are my three fears. We're going to work through these real quick because they're not the sermon, but they lead us into it. And so the first sermon I have is that a message like today could cloud the gospel. Let me say it again. It could cloud the gospel. One of the things we always want to do here at Calvary is, is take Jesus and make him as big and visible as we possibly can. Now, that's not hard because Jesus is awesome. 
and wonderful and magnificent, and we could go on for a long time. But what we always want to do is lift him up and lift up the cross, the work that he did for salvation, so that we all, especially those who are Christians, might be encouraged by that, but also so that if there's someone who's not a Christian in the room, and I have no doubt that there's people in our sanctuary most weeks that aren't, that they might see Christ. Now, the challenge of the message today is it's one of those topics, one of those teachings, one of those sets of passages that at times for some people can be a stumbling block for them following Christ. Now, the way that I've come to understand this is this, simply this, that there are things that we can only hear, understand, and agree with once our minds and our hearts have begun to be restored. Okay? Once Christ is in our life, there are certain things that we can come to understand and believe and have faith and confidence in. Before Christ is in our life, we're blind to these things. And if you're here today and you're blind to what I'm saying, I'm telling you why. It might be because you don't know Christ. Now, Here's what I also believe. I believe that the best way to get the best view of Christ is to truly look at how amazing and wonderful and awesome his work is. And one of the ways that we do that is by looking at the sin and the brokenness of our lives and of the world and seeing what he has done about it. And so what I know is that even though we could cloud the gospel today with what we're going to talk about, I believe that the gospel can be all the more clear to some of us in the room, all right, that's my first fear, that the gospel would get clouded. My second fear in this message today is that it would cause division in the church. Now, we all come from different places, different backgrounds, and though as a church, we may be pretty unified in terms of how we think and how we act and how we worship and whatnot, I know that we don't always agree particularly on the magnitude of some problems, as well as on the solutions of some problems. And we live in a day and an age in a culture where when any disagreement begins to come, the default option is what? Get mad and run away. Now I want to let you in on a bit of a secret that I think only Don Greenstreet and Betsy, my wife, knows and that is that I don't want to be a pastor this year. Don knows what I'm talking about. This is an election year. And it is going to be nuts. I was a pastor during the last major election year. And it was crazy. This one, I think it's going to be worse. And here's my fear. My fear is that the things of politics and culture are going to cloud and come into the church and divide. I will tell you, I pray for this every single day thus far. This year, and I started last fall, and we're going to keep praying about it because Satan wants to divide our church. Now, I want to tell you, this is sort of a preview to where we're going to be in some later parts of the year. We're going to visit this. One, because I don't ignore problems that could happen. I tend to just sort of throw it all out there, and we'll deal with it. For us to remain unified this year, it is going to take an incredible amount of love, generosity with one another, charity with one another, and a massive amount of humility on the part of every single person who sits in any seat in this room. 
charity, love, generosity, humility. Church, we're going to need that to cruise through this year. And I pray that we would not only cruise through this year, but that we would come through on the other side more unified and more strong than we've ever been. Now here's the thing. I know that some of you will disagree with what I have to say today. And I want you to know, if you disagree with me, that you're wrong. No, I want you to know that you are loved and you are cared for and it is okay to disagree with me, okay? I'm gonna toss that out there right now. You're welcome to. At any point in our church life, you're welcome to, right? But what I hope is that as we come and from different places, that you never let a single message or a single thing that I say or a single thing that somebody in this church says cause you to leave the family that you could so benefit from here at church, okay? So I, I had to work through my fear, first of all, of clouding the gospel. Secondly, I had to work through my fear of division, okay? The third thing that I had to work through this last couple weeks as I prepared is fear of hurting the hurt. Fear of hurting the hurt. Church, I got to tell you something about me and my heart. I never want, I never want to, to damage a bruised wick, right? A smoldering wick. I never, I never want to hurt those who are already hurting. But here's what I know. I know that there are times when our pain is a really good thing. And the reason pain is a really good thing is because it points out to us, sometimes to those around us, where we need help and where we need healing. Church, the only bad pain in our lives is the pain that doesn't result in our growth in our healing, in our help in the Lord. Amen? And so I want you to know, if you are hurt today by anything I say, number one, it is not intentional. And number two, it is time to work through some stuff, to find hope and to find healing. I want everybody in this room to hear this right now. There is not a person in this room that has done something that they should be ashamed of or guilty of in such a way that they lose sight of the forgiveness and grace and love of God. There is not a person in this room who has ever or will ever do something that could cause you to not receive the forgiveness of God if you come to him and turn to him. And as his church, the same thing should be true for all of us. There should be nothing we can do that would cause us to not be loved and accepted by the people of God. Because if he can do it, then we need to do it. Amen? So now that I've got you all wondering where we're going today, let me say a prayer and we'll dive in. God, we just thank you for this morning, the opportunity to be in your word. And Lord, I pray that as we would work through this, that there would be nothing that I say that doesn't need to be said. That there would be no idle words from my mouth, but Lord, that the things for us today would be from you. And I pray, God, for the humility in myself to, to just surrender that to you. I pray, Lord, that we would hear and listen, Lord, and that we would love you all the more today. We'd love each other all the more today. And that we might, Lord, know what is called upon us to do. We thank you and praise you. Amen. All right, church, today we're talking about people. We're talking about humankind. We're talking about humanity. And before we get to the hard stuff, yes, you still have to wait for that. I want to start with some really, really, really wonderful stuff. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verse 
26. I'm going to turn there as well. We're going to be looking at a few verses at the beginning of Genesis to get us started. And again, the first is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. While you turn there, I will just say this. I am not going to say everything that could be said about humanity today, but like I prayed, I'm praying that I would say everything we need to hear today for God's purpose in our life. Amen? So Genesis 1, really, starting in verse 27, says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, first note we want to make here is that in the ESV, it translates two different words as the same word in our passage. It says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. In the Hebrew there, one of those words is the word for likeness, and one of them is image. They mean very much the same thing, and in some translations, they show that they are different words by highlighting likeness and image as different things. But they mean the exact same thing. And so the writer of Genesis brings this out and says, God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now I want to tell you, at this point, Scripture doesn't go into great detail about it, what, it, what it means to be made in the image of God. If you want to study this, I can point you to a dozen books. I have them in my office. I'll let you borrow them. Thousands and thousands of pages have been spent on talking about what it means that we have the image of God. But I will tell you, the first thing that it means is that it's not something that we possess. It is something that we are. What that means is that as God created us in, the, in his image, this is not something that we can surrender. It's not something we can lose as we go through life. It is who we are created in the image of God. Now, what does it mean? I mean, what does it actually mean? Well, it means that we are like God in every way that we are like God, and it means we're not like God in every way that we're not like God. And that's my fancy way of saying we're not actually going to answer that question today in detail. We are like God in every way that we are, and we're not like him in every way that we aren't. We are obviously like him in things like mind and morals, personality, creativity, love, Right And far more. We are unlike him in other obvious ways. For example, I'm not omniscient. I don't know everything. I'm also not infallible. I make mistakes. I'm also not omnipresent. I am only in one place at one time at, at any given moment. Right. So we are like God in some ways. We are unlike God in others. Now, I like letting Scripture interpret for us the best understanding of things. And so for that, we're actually going to jump to Genesis chapter 5, verse 3. And I love that we are given an image that we can really understand just a few verses after we're told that we were created in the image of God. Here's what it says, Genesis chapter 5, verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. For those of you who are paying attention, you'll notice that there's two words here, likeness and image. Those are the same two words that were used in Genesis one, to talk about how we were made in the image of God. And this begins to get us to a place that we can understand. We know what it's like for a son to be 
like, but not actually his father, right? I mean, when I think about my own kids, Betsy and I like to joke that we have our mini-me's. And physically speaking, Mary is very much like Betsy in many, many ways. Eli is like me in many, many ways. They're like us, but not us, right? Now, it gets more than that. It actually switches for our kids when they get to school. Because at school, Mary is far more like me and my motivation and abilities in learning. And Eli is far more like his mom in learning and motivation to learning and all those such things. So we can picture what it looks like as we think and talk about how someone is an image of their parents. All the more so when you think about parents who have multiple kids. And as you look, you know, five, six, seven, eight kids, which I think is amazing if that's you, but I just, I don't even know how you do it. But the more kids you have, the more people can tell about you from them, right? I mean, this one has this piece, and this one has this piece, and this one has this piece. And and in the end, you look at the kids, and you can get a really, really good picture of the parents. That is what it means to be made in the image of God. People are meant to look at us, both as individuals, but also at us, the church, and God's people in general, the people of the world in general, and say, wow. God must be pretty awesome. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. This leads us to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, where we see the same language one more time. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6 is where we get the first prohibition or the first ruling against murder. Here's what it says. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. What we learn here is that there is something really special about those created in the image of God. What you'll notice is that nowhere in Scripture is there a command that if someone kills a dog, a cat, a cow, or a dolphin, that they should be killed. Nor will you read in Scripture that if someone demolishes a rock or tears down a mountain or even poisons an ocean, that that person should be killed. Why? Because humanity is made in the image of God. We are special. We are different. This begins to get us to the heart of a very common biblical command, one that we need to pay attention to. 1 Peter 1, verse 15 through 16 says this, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your Conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, Peter is quoting three separate chapters of the book of Leviticus across four verses, chapter 19, 20, and 21, where we are told those exact things. Be holy because the Lord your God is holy. Now, the simplest definition of the word holy is to be set apart. Well, set apart from what? Well, we get the answer to that in the remembering that we are created in the image of God. We are unique. It means that we are literally to be set apart from everything. There is nothing in all of creation that we are meant to be compared to. Now this starts to have some amazing ramifications for us. 
as we think about people. <laughs> as we think about people. Now, Tim Keller, he's a, a pastor. He, he died this year. He's one of the pastors that I have listened to and read more than any other in my life. Paraphrasing, not quoting here, he said that many of us retreat to rural places to see the glory of God. Anybody else? <laughs> I do. I talk about that all the time. Here's what Tim Keller said. Keller said, if you really want to see God, then you would need to go to the world's largest, most people-dense cities of the world. There you will have the easiest time seeing God. Now, I don't want to do that. Right? Not only we all live here in Monta Vista or in the San Luis Valley. We're here for a reason. We'd like to be as far away from crowds of people as we can. But he's absolutely right. If you want to see the best view of God, we must stop looking at the mountains and start looking at our neighbors. And I think some of us need the reminder. Some of us need this reminder that the most beautiful thing in the San Luis Valley is not its views, but rather it is its people. And I want you to know, if you can't believe that, then you may have a hard heart. Because when God created, what did he do? He made mankind and he called mankind very good. The rest of it only got a good. The New Testament affirms this, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That phrase, the world, does not mean the earth. It means the people of the world. The world referred to in John 3, 16 is not the earth. Now here's the cool thing. The earth gets the benefit Christ's sacrifice, we're actually told in Romans 8, verse 19, that creation is waiting for that salvation to take full effect. The interesting thing in 8, 19 is it actually tells us the creation is waiting, not for salvation in general, but for the people of God to recognize that they are actually the people of God and to be redeemed and to begin to do what we were supposed to do in the very beginning, and that is to steward this earth. It is not the eco-warriors of the modern world that have the highest calling to steward the creation of the living God. It is those for whom God made in his image and that point people to God as the creator of it all. This leads to an amazing affirmation also in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. In 13, the writer of Hebrews refers to angels. In 14, he says this, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Who are those who are to inherit salvation? It's all of us who accept salvation. In other words, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that the angels, the, the ones in Scripture that are talked about beautiful and glorious and holy and magnificent and they're so wonderful that anytime they show up, their first words are always, do not be afraid. They take second tier, second seat to who? To those who are made in the image of God. The angels themselves are secondary to you and I. 
Now, before we start getting really man-centric here, it was not us who created ourselves in the image of God. It was not us who decided this is who we should be. It was God himself in making you and I, that he would make some such as us created in his image for his glory and his purpose. This is not about us. It is about him. And some of you are starting to wonder, Pastor Matt, why were you afraid to bring this message? This sounds like really good stuff. It is. It is because every one of us is special. Every one of us is special. Here's a few thoughts before we move on to the, the next section. Number one, we need to let this permeate us. We need to let this soak into us. There's an old saying, I'm going to apologize to my wife and every school teacher in here. God, don't make no junk. I have to read it off the page because if I just say it, I correct the grammar as I walk through it. God, don't make no junk. Anybody ever hear that before? I'm pretty sure that when I was a teenager, I heard that for the first time. And I think, I don't know for sure, that that was part of what pushed me to the gospel. Because if God didn't make me to be junk, and he made me for a purpose and for a reason, and church, we need to hear that. Some of you, somebody in this room right now needs to hear this. God, don't make no junk. Now, you may have thrown yourself out, or somebody else might have thrown you out. But people throw away good things all the time. And church, I want you to hear this. You were made in the image of God. He created you special. He created all of us special, right? So I want you to hear that. Maybe you need to hear that today. Maybe that for you is where this sermon ends today. If it is, praise the Lord, but don't leave. Second, because humanity is special, and because it's different than all of creation, what that means is that our ethic towards other people should be very informed by the imago Dei, by the image of God in each one of us. And I will just tell you, biblical ethics are absorbed. They're full of this ethic. We already looked at one. Don't murder. Why? Because humanity is special. Okay? Let's add to that. This is one of the reasons why pornography and lust are so dangerous. Because in that moment, what we are doing is taking someone who is made in the image of God and we are doing our best to rip that specialness away from them. Men and women, when you look at pornography, your goal is to remove the image of God in them for your own selfishness. This is also why we need to have biblical conversations about things like immigration in order to inform and before we have political conversations. This is also one of the reasons here at Calvary we talk about evangelism a lot. Because it is tragic when someone who is made in the image of God, meant for the purpose of the glory of God, never hears how special they are in the eyes of God and never hears that Jesus Christ died for them and thus die and are separated from that eternal father forever. This is also one of the reasons why we can absolutely hate the situation that someone is in. We can hate the choices they've made. We can hate the things that they have done or are still doing and yet still have a completely broken heart for that person. 
and want nothing but good for them, right? Because people of God, we believe in this. We need to affirm together how special humanity is. And I pray there is not a person in this room that would not hear that and believe it. That's the first thing we, we see in our, pa- in, in our passages today about humanity. Here's the second thing. And that is that the specialness of life begins at conception. Now, some of you are sitting there thinking at this moment, oh, that's why he started the way he started. Because you know like I know that that statement is really hard for some. And what you know, as we come into this, we live in a cultural moment where that is utterly dismissed. Now, you also know that there are people with great pain in that avenue. And you know that this is a hard thing for some people to talk about. As I begin preaching, I know that I am either preaching to the choir in a room like this or to a mob with pitchforks and torches. And I recognize that some of us are both. What I want to do is I want to derail and I want to get away from all of that angst and all of the stress of all of those things. And maybe we'll come back to that. I hope not. But what I want to do is just land biblically for a few minutes. We need to know this. Betsy read for us earlier Psalm 139, verse 13 through 16. I'm going to turn there so we can read it. I invite you to turn there. Psalm 139, verse 13 through 16. And church, here's, here's one of my favorite psalms. And I don't love it for this paragraph. I actually love it for the end where we're invited to look at ourselves and to ask the Lord God to evaluate us and to show us if there's anything unright in us. And so we come to Psalm 139, but in verse 13 through 16, we hear these words. I just want us to soak these in. Psalm 139, starting in verse 13, it says, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when it was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And then Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5 says this, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now I want to pull three very clear lessons out of these for us. The first is that, and I want us to all hear this, though the location of our forming is in our mother's womb, and though God uses the miracle of the natural process, God himself is the first agent of creation in the making of every human being. 
I don't want to minimize in any way the amazing things that happens in women's bodies. Men, praise the Lord, we don't do that. Women, thank you. But may we all know where that comes from. And that is from God himself. I love the poetic language of our passage here. Verse 139, chapter 139, verse 13. You formed. I get this image in that of, of taking clay and molding it and making it what it's supposed to be. Then you get this image of being knitted together in your mother's womb. Now, I had a brief stint in college where I learned to knit. I was not good at it, but I made Betsy a hat. For each and every stitch to go each and every place it's supposed to, to follow each and every design that it's supposed to be so that at the end it is exactly what it is supposed to be. I never got that right. <laughs> then in verse 14, you get this praise and worship from David. He says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful your works. My soul knows it very well. David's not saying here, oh, look at me, how great am I? He's saying, look at you, how great you are. For he has made me wonderfully. And beautifully, it is his miraculous work that does this. And then in verse 15, he says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. And I think the image that we should have there is very much of the very amazing, ornate tapestry fabrics that were used to build the temple inlaced and laden in with gold and silver. It's amazing. Think about the works of art those were. And that is what God does. He intricately weaves together every human being. We see then in second lesson in here is that every life is full of the intentionality and purpose of God, okay? Every life is full of the intentionality and the purpose of God. Verse 139, or verse 16 in chapter 139 says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Jeremiah, verse 5, says, before I formed you in the womb, ouch, I knew you. Wow. Church, God is the God of is. God is the God of is. The trouble is we think we're the center of the universe. And so we look at our existence. We look at our place in time and space, and we see everything from that. Which means you have a pre-born child in a mother's womb that is not yet, but God sees is, right? God knows that child. And hear this, God knows you. He knew you before you were formed. He knew you when you were being formed. He knew you were a little child. And some of us need this encouragement. 
Because God is, what he sees in you right now is not who you are right now, praise God. He sees who we will be in eternity, perfected. Hear this. God is the God of is, and the is hasn't happened for us yet, but it's happened for him. So amazing to think about. Somebody in this room right now needs to hear this. The you of today that's broken and sinful and messed up and can't get your act together, that's not who God sees. He knows you. And he knows the future you. As the Spirit transforms you and sanctifies you because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Number three. The third thing we learn here is that the specialness of each person exists before we come from our mother's womb and even before we've conceived. We've seen these in our verses. Right? God knows us before. He's knitting us together. He's got all this together. Here's the truth, church. You cannot escape the wonderful news of the specialness of humanity from the moment of conception all the way forward through in the scriptures. You can't escape it. But you also don't need the scriptures to get there. You don't need the scriptures to get there. Why? Because you and I were made in the image of God, and this is already written on our hearts. This is why. And I want to be careful with these words. This is why we know that when a woman loses a pregnancy... It is so hard, not just for her, and not just for the father and the family, but even down to friendship, right? It hurts our hearts when somebody loses a pregnancy. Why? Because we know, we know how special it is. We know that that is not just a potential life but it is already a life in the image of God. This is why vast cultures through history have protected the unborn. I've had laws that protected those not yet born, protected pregnant mothers. Because you don't need the Bible to know that protecting a pregnant mother is a good thing. Why? Because we know. Church, this is why even those who call themselves pro-choice will often argue that they would rather a mom choose any other option. If it's another option, if there's, why, if it's not special, why would you care if they chose another option or not? Because even they who deny it know it. Hear this. If you're a student of history, you already know this well. Every great act of evil in the entire history of the world begins by dehumanizing the victims, seeking to make them less special, seeking to make them less than what you are, less than what God made them to be. Every great act of evil diminishes 
the humanity of those who are attacked. And so evil persists against the weak and the vulnerable. And church, we've got a job. Proverbs 31, 8 through 9. I'd invite you to turn there because I want your eyes to see these words, if they will. Proverbs 31, 8 through 9. Proverbs 31, 8 through 9. Now, I will just tell you, there are a lot of similar words in Scripture. We're just going here. Proverbs 31, 8 through 9. Open your mouth for the mute. For the rights of all who are destitute, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Long before there were social justice warriors, there was a church. And the church's mandate is to protect the weak and the vulnerable and to seek their best in this world. I've been reading in Isaiah this last week. And in Isaiah, the accusation that comes against the whole nation of Israel is that they refuse to take care of the poor and the needy among them. As a result, God punished them. Over and over again in Scripture, we, the church, are called to justice. My fear is this, that there are those in the world who claim that as their role, and so what we've done is given it to them but they corrupted it and they've done something else with it. What we need to do is revise biblical justice and the work that we're called to as the church. I mean, can you think of anybody more appropriate for those than in this passage, open the mouth for the mute, right? Those are the ones that can't speak up for themselves. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy, right? Those who can't fight for themselves need those who can. And I want to tell you, yes, we've landed in some pro-life stuff here, but that's only a piece. That's only a piece of this whole thing. The church, from the very beginning of its inception, has always been a pro-life or a for-life faith community. As early as 300 AD, there are historical records. There are letters that were written from pagan religious leaders complaining to their rulers of Christians taking such good care of the sick that they not only cared for their own, but for everybody else's sick, that the pagan religious leaders were losing people and they were all converting to Christianity. From the very beginning of the church, Christians took it upon themselves to go to the trash heaps of the cities to rescue the just-born infants of prostitutes and the just-born, usually female children to those who didn't want one more mouth to feed. And they took them in and they cared for them and they raised them as their own. This is the same reason why throughout the history of the world, where there has been famine and war and death, Christians have started orphanages where there aren't enough parents for kids. 
This is the very reason why it was Christians who started the abolitionist movement that would fight against slavery in this country and around the world. And this is why Christians still today are some of the most forerunners in fighting sex trafficking around the world. Because we can't ignore the cries of those who can't cry and are too weak to help themselves. Man, the church hasn't always gotten this right. And for that very reason, we need to not get this one wrong. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Number one, here's, here's what we do. We thank God that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We, we have to. We have to go to the Lord and we have to thank Him. We are fearfully, wonderfully made. What else do we do? Well, we get involved. We get involved. We pray. We pray and we pray and we pray. Along with that, as we get involved with our local pregnancy center, this will be Life Center in Alamosa. Been getting to know them more and more since I've moved up here. They are working in an initiative with many others around the state of Colorado to bring a ballot measure for the protection of life in this year's election. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details on it. I will tell you I've read through it, and I'm going to sign it. I won't tell you to sign it, but I will tell you that you need to read it and decide whether or not you will sign it. Donna is working with them and, and on that as the signature collector here at our church. And what I want you to do is pursue that, sign that, go meet with Donna, talk to her about what that's about, what that is. Maybe you become someone who goes out and collects signatures too, because that can still happen as well. Check in with Donna, check with myself. I'll probably mostly point you to Donna though, because she knows way more about what's going on than I do. When the time comes, when we've gotten enough signatures to to bring that onto the ballot, then every one of us goes and votes. And maybe you want to do more. Maybe you want to do more. There's lots to do. Again, check in with Donna, check in with myself. We'd love to aim you where you need to be. All of that said, and I want to say something really clearly. Church, our first and best hope in this is not politics. It is not laws, it is not legislature, and it is never politicians. And I want you to know this. Today's sermon is not meant to get you to sign that ballot initiative. Just not. This message is, I pray, landing in our hearts, in our minds, that we might be motivated that we might see the work of God not only in our own lives, but in the world around us, and that we might engage with that. Our first and best hope is the Word of God transforming people by the power of the Holy Spirit because of the salvation of Jesus Christ in their lives. Ballot measures in these things, they just get us a little further down the road while we keep reaching the lost. Okay, we wouldn't need a ballot measure if people's hearts and lives were inclined towards God and his word. But they're not. 
And so church, as we move forward together, as we figure out the ways that Calvary Monte Vista is meant to love and serve the San Luis Valley, as we figure out what that looks like for us to love and encourage one another, church, I just pray that the Lord would work in us and our community and move out from there. So hear this really well. Hear the good news. God fearfully and wonderfully made you. And he has called you out for his purposes and your good, and he has offered up salvation to you. And maybe today you need to turn to him for the first time, the tenth time, or the hundredth time. But turn to him. If you need to speak to someone about the stuff in your life, whether it's pain, whether it's sin or brokenness, if you need to confess sin, if you need to lay out your hopes that Jesus could save you, church, I want you to know I'd love to meet with you. I'd love to spend some time with you. I'd love to get the chance to hear your story and to speak the gospel into it if I get that chance. If you need to give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you need to lay out who you are to him, and confess him, I'd encourage you to do that today, even while we pray and even while we take the Lord's Supper and finish out our time. For the rest of us, I just pray that you would know this truth. Know that God made you in his image, and you are special, and you are called. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you and praise you for your wonderful news today. God, as difficult as it is to confront in culture and work through this stuff, God, we know how much we need it. So, Lord, we pray that you would work in us in this time. I pray you'd lead us into the Lord's Supper. God, that we might serve you, that we might love you, and we might know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.